Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. We're here in Zoomland today, Matt Offenbacher and I. Matt, how's everything in Zoom world for you? My goodness, I mean, we're, uh, I don't even know if I have words. We're getting by, we're getting right? by. That's it, that's it. We're thriving though, we're not trying to survive. We're getting by and thriving, Matt. Yes, I mean, yes. we're getting by thriving. That's right, that's right. No, and speaking of thriving, my daughter's thriving as she goes into grade two on Wednesday, had meet the teacher, which is why I'm at home on Zoom land on a Monday, which is not very typical of being me. But anyway, you know, school's back in session. I don't know about, well, you kind of have a different route into work, but I don't think traffic's really died down this summer. So I'm not really looking forward to traffic as it ramps up because I feel like people in Houston did like if they weren't going to school, they were going somewhere at seven, eight in the morning. Is that the same for you or what do you see it? Yeah, I didn't really feel like it died down. And I'm worried like day one HISD opens up. It's going to be way worse than we all thought. And <laughs> yeah. I've noticed it's like all those people who got the summer off or whatever forgot what it's like to drive in traffic. Mm. And have made no accommodations for the extra cars. And so it's just, it's kind of scary. So yeah, thanks for reminding me. I'm really not looking forward to it. <laughs> Actually, in talking about traffic and all that, I saw, I think it was kind of ironic. Zoom was encouraged, or they put a policy in place about going back to the office if you're within like a certain radius or something. And so Zoom people are encouraging people to go back to the office, yeah. which is kind of comical in itself. But yeah, I think a lot of companies just are slowly moving more towards either going like hybrid, like with like a dedicated work schedule in the office and in at home. But there's not too many people that you're hearing more and more of companies encouraging people to go back to the office and we don't have to get into the details as to why and who and what and when. But I myself like the hybrid option. I like it when traffic's really heavy. So I try and pick and choose the days. But nonetheless, traffic is nuts. It's hot. And speaking of hot, Matt, if you're drilling in certain parts of the US and the world, a lot of times you're going to need fluids that can handle the heat. And yes. so I think talking about high temp fluids, not just if you're drilling here in Houston today, but subsurface wise, you're going to need something to be able to withstand the heat. So what do you think about talking about that today, buddy? I think it's a great idea. And what an amazing segue. You planned that, didn't you? I've been thinking about it all weekend, buddy. As I was in Colorado and it was 55 degrees. So Ooh. it was really on the top of my mind coming back and talking about this. So Matt, with that being said, let's talk about the definition of high temperature fluids. How are we defining these bad boys? So there are the traditional definitions of high pressure, high temperature and all that. I'm an extreme or ultra high pressure, high temperature. I'm not getting into that besides the fact that all the people that try to define it can't seem to get along on what it is, but obviously very hot. I think for the purposes of today, I sort of allude to when your usual run of the mill off the shelf stuff starts breaking down, you know, so, mm -hmm. and that depends on the products, right? So in water-based mud, a lot of your key stuff like xanthan gum and, you know, starches and stuff start around 225, it starts to get a little dicey, 225 to 250, sort of in that range. And then you've got to go... You can use some stabilizers, you can do some other things, you can be very aggressive, and you could probably get a fluid where you're pretty comfortable drilling at about 310, 315, and then after that, it just falls off a cliff. 
And so, yes, there are fluids, water-based fluids you drill at 400 degrees Fahrenheit. We'll get into a little bit of that, but it's another way where even if I had like really good temperature stabilizers and did everything I could that I thought I could write, there's just some products that are out of the usual toolkit that do not hold up after 315 F. Right. So the point here is when you're going to drill a well, if you're unfamiliar, if it's a new area, always a good question to ask is what do you expect your bottom hole temperature to be? Because then you're going to know exactly which direction to go, high temp or not. Sure. And then oil-based mud is a bit more forgiving, but up in the 300, 330, I would say, and especially 350, like a lot of your products start to cook where you have to look at, once you get above 300, you have to look and say, okay, can I improve my fluid stability with some higher end, more exotic products? And so oil-based mud is more thermally stable, but look, if I've seen stuff that holds up at 500 degrees. It's pretty cool. It's just not cheap. We have those tools. They're out there, but the conventional stuff starts to run out on you in that 300 to 350-ish range, we'll say. Okay. So let's talk a little about strategy for high temp fluids. When going into it, what are we what are we looking at? So this is a little bit of that inflection point you alluded to earlier, where it's like, okay, they've drilled in the 80s, they were drilling vertical holes that were very, very hot, right? Like we know. How did they do it if they didn't have what we have now? And one of the things they did is they just used truckloads of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So as long as it's fresh going down hole and makes it you know, without the whole falling apart or anything like that, can you just accept the idea that you're going to go through a ton of products to drill a really hot well? And sometimes that works. And then other times you say, look, like I want a stable circulating system. So you use the higher end stuff and commit to that. And that can be really important. Let's say you're going to log for three days. You probably don't want your mud falling apart in the hole while you're doing that. It may be if you're just going to drill, turn and burn that it doesn't matter. Like you drill that well, you leave some stuff in the open hole. It doesn't completely fall apart, but you trash it when you circulate it out of the well and you start with fresh stuff. That may be a poor boy method. And then other times you'll do sort of a combination. Like a lot of times we start with cheaper stuff. As we get hotter, we break it over. It may be that we go with cheaper stuff while we're circulating. And then we spot, you know, a fluid for our trips or what have you that's more stable. And we know the bay rights not going to fall out or anything like that. So There can be a mix and sometimes you've got to figure out like, am I just going to cook a bunch of stuff or do I need that stability? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think before even getting there, there's there's really some things we can do to qualify the the fluid itself. Because if, like I alluded to before, is if you know the bottom hole temperature, you can do a little pregame work on it to make sure it actually is going to do the job. Yes. Yeah. If we're going to do something really hot, we would like to talk about that first. Let's get comfortable with the temperature you're at and make sure we're not surprised by something that's out of our normal running range. But, you know, in the lab, we'll take a mud formulation and we'll hot roll it at bottom hole temperature. Normally, 16 hours is sort of the standard with the idea that that would get you more than enough on the heating up in the oven, gets to bottom hole temperature, comes back to surface. If it falls apart after that, you might want to reformulate and just make sure you've got something that can hold together. You know, you're going to check rheology and fluid loss, make sure that stuff stays together after that hot roll. But going back to those special operations, you can static gauge fluids for certain numbers of days. You can measure uh, static sag, see if bayrite starts falling out if you were to have to come out of the hole for an extended period of time. And keep in mind, you know, not only are you in a more challenging well, but we're going to do it. We're going to throw rocks at directional people again. 
keep in mind, they might not have the tools that can hold up or at least are certainly not as reliable at higher temperatures either. So the odds of you having to come out of hole for a BHA change go up, which means you may say, oh, well, if we do it in one run, this will be no problem and blah, 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 we'll get casing on bottom. But be prepared for the notion that the fluid could have to sit for a little while to do something like that. Right. That's true. And, and for the directional folks out there, don't be mad. Obviously, Matt sometimes likes to throw rocks, but I'm here to catch them and intercept them before they hit you in the face. Whoa, you're going to protect directional people? <laughs> hey, it Careful. takes all of us, buddy. I know. We want to play nice. We want to play nice. We admit that. I'm hoping karma turns around and gives me something back, okay? But no, it's <laughs> that's true. And these things can happen. And this is kind of an inside joke, obviously, with the directional side. If you haven't listened to, it's not why Matt hates directional, but it's something along those lines. Yeah, it was something that we had talked about it a few episodes ago. But nonetheless, hopefully, if we're treating the mud to be able to withstand bottom hole temperatures that exceeds your typical fluid, hopefully all the rest of the tools on location are doing the same thing. Again, communicate this to everybody. When it comes down to, I talked about this earlier, I was talking about bottom hole temperature, which we keep talking about, or I do, but there's something that I think needs to be considered. And this is in your notes here is this like, if you're just in a vertical well and you take into account your bottoms up time, there may only be a tiny bit of that fluid, or there'll only be a small portion of time where that fluid's touching something really hot. But coming back to surface, the whole entire system might not be that hot to where you actually have to change the whole system up. So can you talk a little bit about that, Matt? Because I think that's an interesting piece here that needs to be thought of. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about a lateral where let's say you have 10 or 15,000 feet of hole that's at the same, the deepest part of the hole, right? That is going to require more of a mud system than a vertical well where only the lowest part of the hole is hot and every foot you gain is a certain number of degrees cooler as you go. And so it's like, well, is my mud really going to fall apart? Because a bunch of it should be fine you know, what's your bottoms up time? So we do that 16 hour hot roll. This is for all the poor boy stuff out there. I remember doing some coil tubing stuff where we had, you know, a 300 degree plus fluid requirement or 300, maybe 30 degree well. And you can't pump very fast on coil tubing. And like, there's some other things, but the one thing we quickly realized is it didn't need to last 16 hours at bottom hole temperature because on coil inside casing with production tubing in the hole, there's not actually that much volume and therefore your bottoms up is like four hours at the most mm. or your whole circulating time is like four hours. So it was like, okay, I can get a fluid that can stay stable for that long because it's not even going to get that hot. It's not going to be in the hot area of the well. Right. So we like to over-engineer things, but there may be a few practical things to think about in your design scope where it's like, okay, maybe you don't need to go nuts on this. Um, mm-hmm. You can save a lot of money if you don't. Yeah, that's a very good point. But knowing if your fluid is going to sit in a hot environment for a long extended period of time, like a long lateral, then yeah. But if it just kind of passes through it for a few minutes, then less less likely the entire system is going to be contaminated or not contaminated, but it could be affected. So good point. Good point. So let's talk about more specific to the products. Because to your point earlier, each product has sort of that threshold at which once it reaches a certain point, then you could have some adverse reactions. Talk a little bit about that. So some things turn into bad stuff. Some things just just stop doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so it's sort of helpful to understand what could happen. So the reason that you probably wouldn't use gel in a high temperature well is because bentonite, the bonds break apart as you heat up. They're not that strong of interaction. So you get all these clay platelets that flocculate. A lot of attention in some of the high temperature, you know, even geothermal fluids and that sort of thing 
is trying to figure out thinners, not only for bentonite, but any reactive clay that has some sort of montmorillonite-ish reactive material is it'll go nuts as it falls apart and flocculate. And so keeping viscosity under control is a big challenge, but you also may want to avoid those additives. So you've got both adding gel on purpose, and then you've got the breakdown of solids. So in that case, you might actually use something like adipolgite, which is more of like a needle-shaped clay that doesn't swell and react like that. We sort of talked about things breaking into smaller pieces. Just think of like xanthan, it's a branch polymer and the branches break off. And one way that sort of helped me understand this is when you make something, you put a bunch of energy into it, right? Like normally heat or whatever. And then if you give it a bunch of energy, it goes back to that state, right? Mm -hmm. So it gets smaller. Like you put a bunch of energy to force it unnaturally back together. And then you give it the heat where the bonds don't have to stay together anymore. And it wants to go back to what it was which is normally a simpler structure, what have you. And so in some cases, you just use more of it. And maybe that's okay, because it's not a ton more. But then you've got the stuff that breaks down into stuff you don't like, or stops working. So like, let's say you're using a plugging agent, like a uintate or gilsonite, as other people call it, a trademark of the American Gilsonite company. <laughs> but the point is, like, they have softening points. And so once you reach a certain temperature... If it's very, very high and they can tell you what those numbers are and they have different varieties to for higher softening point. But if it's supposed to plug and it's soft, it will just conform to the shape instead of plugging it. So that's a problem. You know, things like lignite and lignosulfonate, you heat them up above about 315, 320, and you're going to get some CO2, which we don't like CO2 in our mud because it's an acid gas. It's corrosive. It wreaks havoc on other things. So it's not just that you might drill and encounter CO2, you might create your own if you include products like that. So amines, not just shale inhibitors, which for the record, if you have a really hot well, you probably don't need because going back to that like bentonite and reactive clays at really high temperatures, it's probably gone through what's called diagenesis. It's turned into something else that's more dispersive than reactive. But let's say you have an amine in there. The amine name comes back to ammonia. And so you can end up releasing ammonia and I've heard of instances where that's been kind of at least noxious. I don't think there's, I mean, don't plan your well around this, but I don't know if necessarily there's enough in some of those products to really make a seriously dangerous situation. But from a general health and safety perspective, it's a no-no, right? We don't want to inhale that stuff. And then just oxidation slash hydrolysis. If you give stuff water, water-based mud stuff, a lot of times it will break down into some kind of acid that will do something else. And so... It might start these like free radicals, as they call them, might actually start attacking other products or other components in your fluid. Hmm. So those are things we obviously don't want and try and limit when we get into sort of the nature of those things. Yeah, there's clearly a lot of things that can happen. And so understanding which products do what under these types of temperatures is super important. Matt, how can we stabilize some of this? Or is there anything we can do if we know we're going to encounter some hot temps, whether it be through additions? or just, you know, any stabilizers? Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll point out is because, you know, like water is one of these contributors. If you have like a saturated salt, like let's say you have 10 pounds sodium chloride brine versus fresh water, you may not need any extra thermal stabilizers. It's actually going to be more temperature stable than fresh water because there's less available water to facilitate some of these chemical reactions. The other thing you can do is buffer. So we mentioned those acidic things breaking down. Well, if you keep extra hydroxyls or keep more basic stuff like magox and lime, and there's a couple of other things you can use, 
that will limit what those assets can do because they're effectively neutralized, right? Formates, which they're actually like really strong antioxidants. So it doesn't take much on the, and you'll see in Norway and that sort of thing, they've used formate brines and they're just inherently very stable, which is obviously what we're seeking. So there's there's a number of those different things in the toolbox that I've done where we've thrown everything in the kitchen sink to try and get something, or I've done you know selectively a couple and tried to figure out concentrations. And to this day, I'm not really sure which one works better. But I also know if you throw the kitchen sink of temperature stabilizers, that's a real hard mud system to maintain. Yeah. So that's a lab activity as opposed to... Sure. I mean, you may come across something that's fairly say easy, but manageable at the rig level. I mean, you never know, right? So I think it's important to play with it and see if there is. And under the right sort of well profile and temperature profile, you may be able to add something instead of having to go do a full swap to a high temp system. If you can sprinkle a little bit of something in there just to kind of give it a little bit more runway, then the cost benefit might be there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to think it through. Yeah. I think one thing too is super important, Matt, is the corrosion side of things. I mean, obviously there's pipe down there and all kinds of different tools and things like that on surface as well. But corrosion can be something that can eat your lunch, no pun intended. Hey, see what you did there? (laughs) So look, corrosion is a chemical reaction, right? So if you give most chemical reactions heat, they go faster. Now you've got a lot of heat. This is something to think about is are my corrosion inhibitors going to work or do their job before they break down? And one thing that I know... You know, let's say you've got a filmer, something that's supposed to provide a coat, which we don't normally, like when we're circulating, we don't use a ton of these kinds of products. But some of these that are designed to actually coat the pipe or what have you, if they break down unevenly, they can actually create a concentration cell and make the corrosion worse. So your general corrosion may be okay, but then you might have a huge pit and create a lot of damage. So I'm very much in favor of figure out what you're adding. Corrosion's a problem. You need to think through how you're going to address that problem, but you're going to want to double check that everything that you're using, just because it says corrosion inhibitor on the side and that it's stable up to whatever, that it actually delivers what it says it can, because you could actually make everything worse. So that's just sort of a heads up, you know, from my perspective on some of that. Yeah, it's good note. Good thing to note. So when it comes to products, Matt, there are certainly some products out there and you've probably seen them on a list somewhere or a product bulletin like XYZ and then... HT or, you know, John Viss, HT, but can you go through your typical high temp products and what they do or what they're used for? Yeah. I mean, in water-based mud, the big talk these days is there's, you know, a synthetic polymer that everybody seems to be using. And, you know, the big issue with synthetic polymers is they tend to not actually have low end rheology. So a lot of synthetic polymers don't break down. They've got stronger bonds. So it takes a lot of energy to make them, but it takes a lot of energy to break them down. And there's one kind of family that everybody's sort of looking at these days, but it's cross-linked in a way that actually gives a reasonable rheological profile. I mean, they're great. You know, they work well. They're good to, you know, 400 degrees plus. There's not that many wells that need them at that temperature, but they hold up pretty well. And I think there's sort of something new in the toolkit over the past, let's say, 10 years that we didn't have before. The issue I see with those is most of them are a viscosifier and a fluid loss control agent. And a lot of times you might want one or the other, but not both. So you're trying to tighten up your fluid loss. And now it's like, well, wait, my viscosity is going to go up. So something to think about on the oil-based side, you know, our organoclays, so hectorite, 
which is sort of a hectorite is found. It's got lithium in it, I think. And so there's a lot of people excited about the old hectorite mines. It's yeah. the lithium people who have it, but you can have it treated with an amine as an organophilic clay. And basically because the bonds don't break apart as readily. And from some of the literature, it appears it holds onto the amine a little better. It's a much more temperature stable clay. So versus bentonite. So you make the switch on the emulsifier side. You know, a lot of these really high temperature oil-based muds will be nitrogen free. So we're getting rid of the amine. Those are kind of special, relatively expensive, but very robust for high temperatures. Other high temperature products in the toolkit, I alluded to thinners. So a lot of them are resin based. So not necessarily cheap, but very effective uh, to thin when you see all this flocculation and some of those challenges in higher temperature wells. That sort of runs through a lot of it. My experience, the hard part with developing high temperature products these days is you don't need it in as many wells. And so that makes it very expensive. Like you want to do a new thing. Your business case is much smaller, which means you have to charge more and you have to find enough people willing to do it. And so that's always been a bit of a challenge in designing these. Right. And I'm sure there's others out there I'm missing. That's what listeners are for. Come after me. <laughs> right. I'll yeah. Give us one. <laughs> give us something else. Cause I know there's got to be something out there. When it comes to products, Matt, when we're talking about, and you may have mentioned it, but when you're talking about like emulsifiers and wetting agents, would that fall? What would you put that under? Or is that, would that be a separate category? Well, I mean, I alluded to the nitrogen free emulsifier. You know, the oil wetting agents. The challenge there, I, this is me just spitballing, but I assume some of them may be like imidazolines and everything, but mm. you apply like, which is a takeoff, but it's like an extra process that requires more heat, but that's a reversible reaction too, where you give it more heat and it goes back to something that can break down. Ah, I gotcha. Interesting. That seems to be like, and especially in South Texas, sometimes like that's really the only place from my experience that's you know, on your north, I mean, again, Haynesville, I'm sure too. I personally just don't have any experience in the Haynesville myself, but I know in South Texas, there's some wells with a customer that we have, and we're going into some hot areas and we'll throw in for like contingency products on location. And it's typically, you know, the emulsifier in the wet and a couple other, you know, just key products. And again, it's what we found is instead of having to go to these high dollar products, we've actually been able to really just manage the viscosity to where it doesn't affect us. And it's actually more cost effective to man to just deal with it in ways we know we can versus swapping over. And there's no adverse effects aside from spending a little bit more money, but not as much money as we would going to these high temp products. So again, there's when you're in that kind of riding the line, there's ways to manage it if you've got experience doing it. But obviously to completely de-risk the situation, if you haven't done it before, is to make that swap and understand the limitations of, of doing so as well. So that's really all I wanted to add to that, Matt. Any closing last words before we close out here, buddy? I mean, I think I'd circle back to some of the things you were alluding to where I think you can sort of figure out what you can get away with. And a lot of times we don't start out with a fresh high temperature mud. A lot of times we start with something pretty conventional and start breaking it over with high temperature additives as we get into a hotter area of the well. And so there's a reasonable chance that you might find out you can get away with a little bit more or you can use a ratio of high temperature products to conventional products and you can make it work. So I would just emphasize that you look at the per barrel cost and it's not always going to be all or none. It's going to be, I'm going to have to start adding these things as I get into this interval hmm. and I'm going to have, you know what I mean? So yeah, application, some of that's more of an art form. And going back to what you were saying again, it may be you start out and do the first one with extra caution and then you start figuring out, okay, what can I get away with? 
Yeah, no, that's exactly kind of what we did. So, uh, and it works. With that said, everyone out there, if you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, if you'd like to debate Matt, I'd love for that to happen. If anyone wants to come on the flow line and debate Matt, I think that'd be hilarious, mainly for my own self-satisfaction. But uh, I think a good debate is also, is always healthy, right? We've been doing this for a long time and Matt's read his fair share of comments. But again, the intent is good, but oftentimes people feel like they've got more to add or maybe counter the train of thought that we have here that we've mentioned on the flow line. So I know I'm putting Matt on the stand here and saying, if anyone wants to do battle bots with Matt over mud, uh, I think that'd be hilarious. But with that being said, we do appreciate the support. All jokes aside, a lot of the good questions and comments do come from the listeners, whether it be internal folks here at AES or people that have listened for a long time and, and have some questions. So please, I encourage you to reach out, connect with us on LinkedIn, email us at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. And if you've been a longstanding listener, I know there's a few out there that are. It really means a lot to us. We really appreciate the support. Obviously, Matt and I have been doing this for you know quite a while now. I don't know how many episodes we've got, but it's countless hours of Matt and I talking about drilling fluids. And sometimes it feels like we're speaking into the abyss. But when we're out and about and talking to folks, it's clear that we're not. But we do appreciate it. And so just wanted to genuinely tell you that if you've been and, and if you're a recent listener, go back and listen. There's a ton of episodes. But if you feel like there's a topic we haven't covered, please let us know. Clearly, there's only so many topics that we can think of, but the world of MUD's always evolving. There's always new challenges, always new things to talk about, but it's hard to think of them all. So if you have anything, please let us know. And with that being said, everyone, thanks for listening. Take care. Be safe. Until next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.